And how's that for a Saturday morning during the plague year? Something to nudge us over a little bit into a little bit of happiness and joy and just being here. That, of course, was Dave Brubeck's quartet with Take Five, probably one of the biggest hits, most popular sides, uh, jazz sides ever, Take Five. Brubeck uh, grew up in the East Bay in the Livermore area. His father had a cattle ranch and he said one day when he was about 12 years old he they went riding out to uh, tend the cattle and his dad had hired some ranch hands and Brubeck saw an African-American man a ranch hand and he had a brand on him he had been branded So Brubeck said he never forgot that. That colored his whole approach to society after that. Actually broke down and cried when he was talking about it. Morning in America before that with uh, Duran Jones and a beautiful uh, video montage of private lives and public lives morning in America. And then before that, uh, Osomatli with um, Aquino Serra. It won't happen here. We won't let it happen here. A song by Enrique Ramirez, a local uh, musician uh, turned immigration attorney. See if we can get his band, the Los Pelugos, their version of that, to play uh, next week. Well, you're listening to Labor and Love Radio, and this is the B, the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work, you're going to be on the menu. Your life will be on the menu. Your experience of as far as we know, your one chance here in the light. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. So you see, we begin at an abstract situation. We move down into a social situation. And now we're in a romantico, ro a romantic emotional situation. The three levels of human existence. Never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. I say labor, I mean you, Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Okay, what do we got for you today? Today is uh, an auspicious day in 
resistance history on this date, August 29th, 1968, approximately 20,000 students walked out of universities and high school in what came to be called the Chicano Moratorium. More on that. I want you to meet Mr. Block, my friend who will fall for everything. He stands for nothing, and he'll fall, call for everything. A labor cartoon by a guy named Ernest Reby and um, resuscitated by uh, Thorkelson. I can't remember his name. Dan Thorkelson. Uh, labor uh, resistance cartoonist. A graphics artist. What is a Chicano anyway? That's something we'll look into. Uh, Columbine men and Ruben Salazar. Then we've got uh, some of the 10 best political songs of the 2000s. We got, we're going to play the Nana again. We've got Dick Gregory. This week we lost a giant. Uh, in the, the resistance movement, the alternative culture, whatever, the anti-capitalist, anti-corporate state movement, anti-Vietnam War movement, Mr. Dick Gregory. Our usual stuff, labor in two minutes, labor history in two minutes. Do that right now, labor history in two minutes. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1907. That was the day that became known for the Quebec Bridge disaster in Canada. Workers were building a cantilever bridge over the St. Lawrence River. This was not an easy task. The river was two miles wide at its narrowest point. The river was deep, moved quickly, and was icy in the winter. But in the late 1880s, businessmen in Quebec who wanted to keep up trade with Montreal, decided the river had to be spanned. The project did not begin for more than a decade due to a lack of funds. Finally, the Canadian government supported the project to improve the nation's railway infrastructure. Theodore Cooper, a respected American bridge designer, was signed on for the project. Despite concerns about the bridge's design, he never visited the site due to illness. 86 men were working on the project that fateful day. Their workday was drawing to a close when the bridge suddenly collapsed. 75 men plunged to their deaths. Some of their bodies were never found. The bridge collapsed because of design flaws. The official report of the disaster noted that the loss of life, quote, might have been prevented by the exercise of better judgment on the part of those in responsible charge of the work for the Quebec Bridge and Railway Company and the Phoenix Bridge Company. Unfortunately, it was not the last tragedy trying to cross the St. Lawrence. 
After the bridge collapsed, the Canadian government took over the project. A partial collapse on that effort killed 13 more workers in 1916. The bridge finally opened in 1917. Its completion came at a high price, costing $22 million and 86 lives. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1963. That was the day one of the most important stands for justice and equality took place in United States history. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech to a quarter million people in Washington, D.C. But did you know that one of the main organizers for the march was a man by the name of Baird Rustin? Rustin is often left out of the history books because he was gay and because of his earlier communist affiliation. He was born in 1912 and raised in Westchester, Pennsylvania. He was raised in the Quaker tradition, and his commitment to peaceful, nonviolent protest continued into the civil rights movement. Rustin joined the Young Communist League in the 1930s, a time when communist organizers were some of the few people actively speaking out about racial injustice in the United States. After he left the Young Communist League, Rustin spent a brief time as an organizer for a march on Washington, D.C., planned in the 1940s. This movement was led by one A. Philip Randolph. The planned march was aimed at putting pressure on President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to desegregate work at industries with federal wartime manufacturing contracts. When President Roosevelt agreed to issue an order desegregating these jobs, the planned march was called off. But the idea for the march lived on and became a reality during the civil rights movement. Rustin went on to work in the labor movement. He became the founder and first director of the AFL-CIO's A. Philip Randolph Institute, which focuses on tearing down the walls of discrimination in workplaces and within the labor movement. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1921. That was the day that the Green Bay Packers football team received a charter from the American Professional Football Association. A year later, this would become the National Football League. The Green Bay Club had started up two years earlier. Its original sponsor was the Indian Packing Company in Green Bay, Wisconsin. They packaged canned meat. Meat packaging was a major industry in the Midwest during this era. Packing plants in Chicago, Kansas City, Iowa, and Wisconsin processed the cattle and pigs raised in the West as meat to feed the nation. Curly Lambeau was a shipping clerk for the company. He helped to organize a group of local players into a football team. Curly persuaded his boss to donate money for the uniforms, and it was there that the name Packers was born. When the Indian Packing Company fell on hard times, they were bought out by Acme, another packing company based in Chicago. So, for a brief moment, the Green Bay Packers, one of the staunchest rivals of the Chicago Bears, was actually owned by a Chicago company. Although Acme only owned the team for one year, the team nickname stuck. 
Lambeau was able to buy the team back. He went on to become the Packers coach, leading them to six championships. The Green Bay Packers are not the only American sports franchise that's name harkens back to a particular kind of labor. Another Wisconsin team, the Milwaukee Brewers baseball team, is a reference to that city's proud beer brewing tradition. In Big Ten sports, the Purdue Boilermakers and Nebraska Cornhuskers take to the gridiron each week with names that reflect the working traditions of the cities where the teams play ball. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Okay, there's your Labor History in Two. Um, the bridge. Quebec Bridge disaster, which cost almost 100 l workers' lives. None of the engineers or the investors or the business people were out there putting their lives on the line. As, as the guy concludes, $22 million and 86 lives to build a bridge so that Montreal and Quebec could trade and do business. Fired Rustin, one of the uh, giants of the civil rights movement and of the labor movement. Rustin was a man who organized not one but two marches on Washington. In 1941, uh, forced President Roosevelt desegregate the workplaces for projects that had uh, federal investment. And Bayard Rustin is, as a matter of fact, one of our labor cards, and here it is. Labor card number 26. This is a set of labor cards with 30 portraits short bios of famous labor leaders and uh, labor figures. Number 26, Bayard Rustin, lived from 1912 to 1987. In 1963, and again in 1968, Americans by the hundreds of thousands held a march on Washington to demand social and economic justice, an end to racist laws, poverty and wage slavery. Instrumental in organizing both marches was Pennsylvanian Bayard Rustin. As a college student, he led a fight for a better cap for better cafeteria food. As a pacifist, he refused to fight in World War II. He was a close associate of both civil rights and labor leaders and pioneered the use of nonviolent resistance Freedom rides, rides to end segregation. <coughs> Rustin was gay and worked for gay rights and marriage equality for everyone. This is why Rustin is not better known. Uh, Republicans during the Eisenhower administration warned Martin Luther King that 
if he kept Rustin on his staff and in a prominent position, they would expose Rustin as a gay man. And Rustin seemed like he wasn't anguished about it, wasn't a problem to him. He was gay, that's all. At a point in his life, he was found in the back seat of a car with another guy. But his real impact came as an organizer for the labor movement and the civil rights movement. And then the Green Bay Packers. How many people out there know that uh, the Green Bay Packers are a publicly owned team? Uh, during the 30s, times were so bad for pro football that the owners of the Green Bay Packers tried to sell the team. But there were no takers. Who's going to buy, you know, uh, Green Bay Pat football team during the 30s, during the, the Depression. I'll tell you, nobody. <laughs> so they sold shares in the team to local residents. And to this day, the team is uh, community-owned. Why wouldn't that work for uh, other teams? Let me give you a hint. It would work. It's worked fine for Green Bay Packers. Okay. More murders this week. Uh, guy in um, Kenosha, Wisconsin, gunned down. Hasn't died yet. Seven shots in the back for leaning into his car. 17 years old. It just keeps going on, okay? So I'm going to play you the saddest song I know. One second. Saddest song I know. And the whiskey blues. Much better. Are you ready to give it a try? Installation is simple and free. Visit Grammarly.com today. Stop spending hours every day looking at charts and graphs, having no idea where to invest your money. I've done that before. Uh-oh. Getting leakage here.
Okay, a little jazz there. Let's play the saddest song I know.
Jason Hansen. YG and Nipsey Hussle's video got shut down by cops for an anti-Trump song that's called Donald Trump. I think we 
got kicked out because we're a group of black people. And like, I guess people, what's going on in America, they're afraid we're gonna say something or do something. But we just really want to watch the rally and to get kicked out because we're a group of black people. It's really crazy. It shows you how racist our own school is. We can't even go to our own Fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, nigga, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, nigga, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah. I like white folks, but I don't like you. All the niggas in the hood wanna fight you. Surprise, El Chapo ain't tried to snipe you. Surprise, the nation of Islam ain't tried to find you. Have a rally out LA, we gon' fuck it up. Home of the ride and the King Ride, we don't give a fuck. Black students, ejected from your rally. What? I'm ready to go right now, your racist ass did too much. I'm about to turn Black Panther. Don't let Donald Trump win, that nigga cancer. He too rich, he ain't got the answers. He can't make decisions for this country, he gon' crash us. No, we can't be a slave for him. He got me appreciating nobody my way more. Hey, Donald. And they one that follows you gave us your reason to be president, but we hate you. Fuck Donald Trump. Fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, nigga, fuck Donald Trump. I don't like your yeah, ass. Yeah, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, nigga, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah. Nigga, am I tripping? Let me know. I thought all that Donald Trump bullshit was a joke. Know what they say when rich niggas go broke. Look, Reagan so cold. Obama so hope. Donald Trump spent his trust for money on the vote. I'm from a place where you probably can't go. Speaking for some people that you probably ain't know. It's pressure built up and it's probably gonna blow. And if we say go, then they probably gonna go. You vote Trump, then you probably on dope. And if you like me, then you probably ain't know. And if you been in jail, you could probably still vote. If we let this nigga win, we gonna probably feel broke. You build walls, we gonna probably dig holes. And if your ass do win, you gonna probably get smoked, fuck nigga. Fuck Trump. Fuck you. Fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, nigga, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, nigga, fuck Donald
build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Yeah. Mark my words. Yeah. Hold up, I fuck with Mexicans. Got a plug with Mexicans. When I little need a switch, who I call Mexican. This comedy central ass nigga come be the president. Hold up, nip, tell the world how you fuck with Mexicans. It wouldn't be the USA without Mexicans. And if it's time to team up, shit, let's begin. Black love, brown pride, and assess again. White people feel the same as my next to Kent. Let this nigga win, God bless the kids. God bless the kids, this nigga wicked and weird. When me and Nip link, that's bloods and crips. We your LA rally, we gon' crash your shit. Fuck down, try. Fuck down, try. Yeah, nigga, fuck down, try. Yeah, yeah, fuck down, try. Yeah, fuck down, try. Yeah, fuck down, try. Yeah, nigga, fuck down, try. Yeah, yeah, fuck down, try. Yeah. FTD and F Donald Trump. I mean, they came right out and say, <coughs> said it. <coughs> Nipsey Hussle was uh, sort of a neighborhood figure in, in uh, Los Angeles. <coughs> I believe he owned a shop. I'm not sure. <coughs> but uh, he was murdered. Uh, kind of a leader of the of the left, you know, people who were who were resisting, people who wanted to, uh, well, FTD, FDT, you know, fuck Donald Trump, excuse me. <laughs> Play one more, here's one I found. Some of us are illegal and some are not wanted. Our work contracts out and we have to move on. But it's 600 miles to that Mexican border. They chase us like outlaws, like rustlers, like bees. Goodbye. Tomorrow, goodbye, Rosalita. Adios, 
father's own father he waded that river they took all the money he made in his life my brothers and sisters come working the fruit trees and they rode the truck till they took down and died the airplane caught fire over Las Gatos Canyon a fireball of lightning that shook all our hills who are these dear friends all scattered like dry leaves the radio said They were just deportees. Goodbye to my one goodbye, Rosalita. Adios, Miss Amigos, Jesus and Maria. You won't have a name when you ride the big On the 28th day of January, 1948, a plane took off from San Jose, California, bound for El Centro, California. It was a plane that was chartered Dolly Parton singing Deportees. Dolly Parton, not normally the kind of person you, artist who would sing about deportees, but she did. Um, Parton has a reputation of being very uh, generous and open handed toward people who need help, using her money for the public good. Okay, let's see. I wanted to get into Chicanismo. Uh, highlight this week the Chicano Moratorium. Came to be known as the Chicano Moratorium. And here is uh, a celebrated Chicano poet named Alurista. The Spirit of Aslan. You do speak spinach as well? You speak spinach? This was written March of 1969. 
en Denver, Colorado, under the auspicios, la hospitalidad y la organización de nuestro jefe, que en paz descanse, Corky González. Él no escribió esto, pero fue ese, esa reunión, the first national Chicano youth conference in the modern day, March 1969. In the spirit of a new people that is conscious not only of its proud historical heritage, but also of the brutal gringo invasion of our territories, we, the Chicano inhabitants, and civilizers of the northern land of Aztlán, from which came our forefathers, reclaiming the land of their birth and consecrating the determination of our people of the sun, declare that our land is our power, our blood, our responsibility, and our inevitable destiny. We are free and sovereign to determine those tasks which are justly called forth by our house, our land, the sweat of our brows, and by our hearts. Aztlán belongs to those who plant the seeds, water the fields, and gather the crops, and not to the foreign Europeans. We do not recognize capricious borders on the bronze continent. I repeat, we do not recognize capricious borders on the bronze continent. There are no undocumented workers when there are no borders. Brotherhood, sisterhood unites us in love for our brothers and sisters, makes us a people whose time has come and who struggle against the foreigner Gabacho who exploits our riches and destroys our culture. With our heart and our hands, and our hands in the soil, we declare the independence of our Mestizo nation. We are a bronze people with a bronze culture before the world, before all of North America, before all of our brothers and sisters in the bronze continent. We are a nation. We are a union of free pueblos. We are as planned. That was Alurista, a renowned uh, Chicano poet, being sort of a declaration of Chicanismo. What is the Chicano nation? because um, what was it, 68, 72, 52 years ago, 20,000 Chicano students walked out of their classes in high school and college. Here we go, this is celebrating the Chicano. streets of East LA for what would become the largest gathering of Mexican Americans protesting the Vietnam War. We decided 
we need to organize our, our own peace demonstrations in our own neighborhoods. Rosalio Munoz was co-chair of the March Anti-Draft Resistor. The then 24-year-old activist organized a series of protests known as the Chicano Moratorium. The goal? To get more Latinos politically engaged and heard. People thought that peace demonstrations were a white thing, a gabacho thing. I said, no. This is a way Chicanos can organize our peace demonstration, al estilo Chicano. In the basement of this historic Lincoln Heights Episcopalian Church is where La Raza newspaper started during the early days of the Chicano movement. It provided a voice to the voiceless. That was the, uh, the need to create a form of communications and media where at a time we were not receiving any coverage. Luis Garza, a young photographer, documented the cries of social justice for the paper turned magazine. We were capturing images on 35 millimeter and we were reproducing the images as fast as we could to print. Iconic images like this one. LA County Sheriff's deputies fired a tear gas canister into the Silver Dollar Bar Cafe, killing trailblazing journalist Ruben Salazar. At first they said he was shot. <laughs> if you read the LA Times, the first headline. But then it was finally when La Raza, the newspaper's photojournalist, that had a picture of them having a tear gas projectile right in front of the window that they said, oh, the sheriff's did it. Violent clashes between protesters and law enforcement had turned deadly. Historians say the chaos underscored police abuse and misconduct within the Chicano community. Fifty years later, the lessons of the Chicano moratorium still resonate. To be proud for us to develop our own voices, our own goals for this new generation. A movement activists say continues in the quest for social justice. In Lincoln Heights, Carlos Salcedo, KTLA 5 News. Okay, that's the rundown on the uh, Chicano moratorium. And we have a, a column here by the guy, Ruben Salazar, who was killed that day. And Salazar was a journalist who covered the Chicano community, even though he didn't live in the Chicano community. Um, had a family um, sort of removed from the whole uh, Chicano neighborhood, but nevertheless wrote compellingly on the movement. And he wrote this column. I don't want to read the whole thing, although it might be instructive. What is a Chicano and what is it that the Chicanos want? This was a great question during the, four, the 50s and the 60s as white people in ties and suits tried to uh, solve racial problems in our country by sitting around asking each other, or asking selected guests, what is it that Chicanos want? What is it that 
the Negro ones. And Salazar writes, the Chicano is a Mexican-American with a non-Anglo image of himself. He resents being told that Columbus discovered America when the Chicano's ancestors, the Mayans and the Aztecs, founded highly sophisticated civilizations centuries before Spain financed the Italian explorer's trip to the quote-unquote New World. Chicanos resent also Anglo pronouncements that Chicanos are culturally deprived of the fact that they speak Spanish is a problem. This was a view that was common in schools, in public schools, where a child's knowledge of Spanish was a problem. It wasn't his first language. We gotta make him speak English. Thus bilingual education was born and that's why it was such a political issue and continues to be. Chicanos will tell you their culture predates that of the pilgrims and that Spanish was spoken in America before English and so the problem is not theirs but the Anglos who don't speak Spanish. Having told you that, the Chicano will then contend that Anglos are Spanish-oriented at the expense of Mexicans. They will complain that when the governor dresses up as a Spanish nobleman for the Santa Barbara Fiesta, he's insulting Mexicans because the Spanish conquered and exploited the Mexicans. It's as if the governor dressed like an English redcoat for a 4th of July parade, Chicanos say. When you think you know what Chicanos are getting at, a Mexican-American will tell you that Chicano is an insulting term. And they even quote the Spanish Academy to prove that Chicano derives from Chicano. The Chicano will scoff at this and say that such Mexican-Americans have been brainwashed by Anglos and that they're Tio Tacos, Uncle Tom. This type of Mexican-American, Chicanos will argue, don't like the word Chicano because it's abrasive to their Anglo-oriented minds. These poor people are brown Anglos, Chicanos smirk. What then is a Chicano? Chicanos say that if you have to ask, you'll never understand, much less become a Chicano word is as difficult to define as soul. Mexican-Americans average eight years of schooling compared to Negroes ten, Black Americans ten. Farm workers, most of whom are Mexican-Americans in the Southwest, are excluded from the National Labor Relations Act. Chicanos then are merely fighting to become Americans, yes, but with a Chicano outlook. Okay, so that's Ruben Salazar. Salazar was killed in that demonstration we referred to. Uh, he was, police evidently targeted him. 
saying, you know, police targeted him and shot a tear gas canister through a window of a restaurant where he was, uh, where he was getting out of the, getting off the street and out of the riot. Okay, let's see. And we're going to have a, a guest call in briefly, talk about her, her involvement in the Chicano movement. Si vengo del Valle de San Gabriel 
Las Cafeteras. <coughs> a group of people actually who met and uh, and started working together at uh, Northridge, California State College at Northridge, um, and decided to form a band, even though uh, co only a couple of them had any experience. And uh, that was uh, La Bamba Rebelde, the, the well-known uh, Mexican folk song La Bamba, made a hit by Richie Valens. And they took it and turned it to a political end. So, again, we're celebrating the 52nd anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium, August 29th, 1968. And uh, I had asked a veteran of that demonstration to call in here. So far, she hasn't. Um, how about this? I, I've got a feature. I'm going to play a speech. Stokely Carmichael on black power. Whites can help us, but they can't join us. <laughs> they can, there can be no black-white unity Malcolm until X. there is first some black unity. We cannot think of being acceptable to others until we have first proven acceptable to ourselves. Concerning nonviolence, <clears throat> it is criminal to teach a man not to defend himself when he is the constant victim of brutal attacks. There are problems in the community. Uh, some of those examples of those problems are, are the uh, uh, vices that destroy the moral fiber in our community. Drunkenness, uh, drug addiction, uh, prostitution, organized crime that robs the Negro community of probably 90% of its economic potential and, uh, and moral potential. One of uh, my reasons for going out on the limb as I have is to try and make white people uh, be shocked awake to some of their senses. Because if they don't awake, they're going to find out that this little Negro that they thought was passive has become a, a roaring, uncontrollable lion right, in, right at their doorstep, not at their doorstep, inside their house, in their bed, in their kitchen, in their attic, in their basement. And if you know that in time, you can do something about it. Malcolm 
Hello? Hello, are you there? I'm here. Okay. I'm here in Pacifica. Um, <clears throat> um, this is a phone call I was uh, talking about from uh, a veteran of the Chicano Moratorium, person who was there and involved in it. Um, Sylvia, thank you so much for calling in. My pleasure. We're we're uh, celebrating the 52nd anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium, and I'm wondering, at the time you were in uh, college? I was. And uh, what was the mood of people before this happened, uh, and, and how did word spread that it was going to happen? Well, it was a... Uh it was a time of a lot of organizing in our communities. There were um, the GI Forum, uh, soldiers that had come back from World War II and the Korean War. They had their organizations. MAPA, the Mexican-American Political Association, was really strong in organizing people to register to vote um, in the uh, in the universities. We were organizing to... Um, to make uh, education more relevant and also to, um, uh, to encourage high school students to, um, to come to college. And um, Nixon had been elected and he had said that he was going to pull the troops back. That was in January. And uh, uh, the mood of the country was very dissatisfied with the war, especially young people. Um, young people that had uh, known, like in, in my in my situation, a lot of my high school friends had gone to the war, um, and uh, we were beginning to hear that a lot of the Chicanos were being used as cannon fodder and being sent to the front um, because although we were 10% of the population, 20% of the casualties in Vietnam were Chicanos, so there was, um, um, there was, but generally the mood was that um, young people were organizing for self-determination. We were trying to um, uh, change um, the educational, the housing, um, you know, just a lot of uh, labor. Uh, we were uh, working to, to change institutions to respond to our needs. Okay. All right. So we were talking earlier on the show about uh, Ruben Salazar. Were you uh, aware of him at the time as a voice of the Chicano community? Not really. I'm. Uh, I was um, in San Diego. I don't. I. I didn't really read the L.A. Times that much then. Um, um, maybe the San Diego Tribune, if at all, or the Imperial Valley Times. I was, I was from, I'm from El Centro, California, so um, I always liked the, the Imperial Valley Times. <laughs> but anyway, uh, no, I didn't know it. Been we, he became, he became a, a martyr and a, a very well respected and known person um, upon his. His death, he might he he was well known around L.A. I understand, 
but outside of the LA area, we didn't know that much about him. In um, but he was a guy that had been writing articles critical of police policing in our community. And at the time, we used to say that we were the most policed commu- community in the U.S. because we had the INS, we had the Border Patrol, we had the Highway Patrol, and um, and we had um, extensive local policing in our community. So part of the Chicano moratorium and part of our demands was that that policing uh, – that there be a review of policing, that there be committees set up to review uh, police practices in the Chicano community. So um, Ruben Salazar has, in a way, uh, now signifies in the community somebody that stood up for their community and that was an educated man that was a columnist for the LA Times, uh, probably the, the... very first or the very few Chicano columnists in the U.S. then or even now. Um, so the fact that he had a, um, uh, he had a pulpit and he was um, um, very uh, educated uh, was, is, is now and was then and is now a sense of a lot of pride for our community because, you know, he... He came from the community, and he you know, wrote for the L.A. Times, and he didn't just he um, he wrote articles that were relevant to our community. So I know that um, he is now um, recognized as a as a form of a martyr um, because he was shot, and some people say that he was targeted, uh, that uh, the police were angry at him for the a series of articles that he had written. Uh-huh. Um, against police, uh-huh. so that's that's what I know about Ruben, and I and I know that several buildings have been named after him, and he, uh, like I said, he's um, he's very uh, much admired now. Okay, uh, one last question, if you don't mind. Um, what if someone came to you and who didn't know anything, and said, "What is a Chicano? What is?" you know, Chicano, Chicana. What does that word mean? What is it about? Well, um, it, it, it is a form of a slang, in our way, and, and in a way, um, uh, there's been a lot of slang words to, that, that young people or uh, use sometimes to identify themselves in many communities. Oh, yeah, um, in but, every community. But what we, you know, the Irish, the blacks, they, I mean, they, you know, they've all had their own word. To, to, so Chicanos, it, um, it comes from the word Mexicanos, Mexicanos. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, we, it was just shortened to Chicanos. And I think that the word says that uh, this was probably in the 19th, 10s, 30s, that people started to use the word in, like, the border communities. Um, uh, to The Chicanos were, um, a lot of times, the, the low-class community uh, in, in that the well-to-do Mexicans saw themselves as Hispanics. 
and uh, the low class were the the Chicanos. You know, it was seen as a derogatory term. Uh, what we did as students, uh, we felt that we wanted to stand by the the people, the the, uh, the low class people, the, the people that picked the fruits and and did the labor. And uh, and those were, you know, referred to as Chicanos, uh, derogatory, as, as opposed to Californios or Hispanics or Mexican-American. Uh, uh, we decided that th we wanted to stand behind that community. And, and we were part of that community, you know. Uh, so um, using the term with pride instead of, uh, of it being a derogatory uh, we we printed it. We put it on our shirts. We put it on our hats. We put it on statements of uh, uh, of uh, uh, goals uh, that students had, like Mecha, and uh, so uh, it was it was not only used, you know, in um, in conversation, but then it started to be used in print. And in in statements of you know of uh, uh, that uh, we were we this was part of our goals of self determination. What we were going to call ourselves was up to us. So um, Chicanos came from that the fact that uh, we were Mexicanos uh, and uh, and we did not like the. The Mexican American at that time, you know, you were Mexican American, you were Black Amer African American, you were Hindu American. It's like you weren't really uh, an American. Period. Uh, you were a hyphenated American, and we thought we didn't, we don't, we did not want to be hyphenated. But Chicano meant that we were of Mexican descent, born in the U.S. So we were Americans of Mexican descent, and we. Um, uh, we chose to call ourselves Chicanos. Okay. That's about the best definition I've heard. And thank you so much for your insights and for uh, sharing your experience with us. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it was uh, tragically... It started as... I just wanted to add the thing about how the moratorium had... It was so well organized. Uh, people had their banners. People had come from every corner of the state. Um, you know, little organizations of three, four people sent their delegates. Um, and, and, and this was costly. This was, we were a poor community, so it cost a lot for individual organizations to send representatives. Um, and, and it started really nice. Uh, everything was peaceful. Uh, there was an incident at a at a corner store, um, and uh, the, the police blew it out of proportion and started to attack the the rally. The march had been really peaceful, but then the rally turned violent, and uh, uh, women with strollers were being attacked by police. It was it was a very vicious and bloody confrontation. It was a police riot, and they had been planning to do it, and they were just waiting to, in my, you know, they were waiting to, to tear it up. They just couldn't stand us 
having a peaceful rally. They have to turn it violent. So after after the march, and and the only thing that came out on TV was the police attacking people for disturbing the peace. Uh-huh. So um, and that's and that you know when I see Black Lives Matters demonstrations, you know. Um, I, I know exactly what happens, you know, it's, uh, even if it's a peaceful march, there's going to be elements, uh, whether they work with the police or not, there's going to be elements of a community that is not happy with people of color or um, uh, people of color organizing. So I, you know, every time I see a demonstration on TV, I am reminded, you know, of having been there and uh, having my rights to speak out, um, be co-opted in the news by uh, elements that don't want me to demonstrate for my rights. Yeah, as is happening right now with as it's happening Mr. Right Trump. Now. A lot of these things go all the way back. We're, we're fighting is, the same battle. 50 years ago, this is 50 years ago that we had a a peaceful demonstration for our rights, and it was co-opted by police brutality. Okay. Well, thanks again for calling in, and um, hopefully we can do this again. Uh, if you're, sure. If you're free. Good show. Okay. Well, thank you. And uh, this is Labor and Love Radio. That was our feature on... The Chicano Moratorium, August 29th, 1968. Mentioned at the top of the show, Dick Gregory. mother watched, worked in white folks' homes, and, and it was kind of interesting because, I mean, rich white folks, I mean, Jack Gordon King, Jewelry, the Anheuser Bushes, uh, the Wallaces, but in the summertime when they would go to Europe, you know, there was no provision for mom. Oh, I see. So she wasn't paid whenever... You no, know, and it was kind of interesting because none of those black folks was paid. So they would take ads out in the newspaper for summer work, and you would hear the horror stories of where white men would sit up fake houses and lure them there, and all kinds of horror stories you would uh, uh, I see. Hear. But that was, you know, uh, I resented it, uh, not the white folks, I resented my mother for not being with us on Christmas. She was there. With and, them. Uh, for not being with us on, on holidays or any special day. And then when she was home, it was kind of aggravating because she discovered that we wasn't doing them. We wasn't washing dishes. We weren't doing none of the things. <laughs> but we knew what time she was coming home so we could run in the house and do it and eat it. It, it, it bothered me to, to hear them say that the blizzard and the sleet and the ice was so bad that automobile insurance would be suspended. And I would see her tie rags and sacks around her shoes 
to walk out to those white folks' house uh, to to be at work. Was your father present? Oh no, we didn't know. I mean, he came yes, in and out. He was in and out. Yeah. Whenever there was a baby born, he was there. How many siblings? Uh, there six of us. Six so, of yeah, you all I, together. I, I, myself and five brothers and sisters. I see. Mm-hmm. And which one are you amongst uh, the them? second? The second yeah, one second. from the oldest. From the oldest. Mm-hmm. Pretty Diva Fifty. civil rights activist and comedian Dick Gregory. Yeah, fans are paying tribute to the man who so brilliantly used humor to fight against racism, racism and to fight for social justice. And Ron is back with more. He had some brilliant He, he really did. Dick Gregory died uh, in Washington yesterday. He once said that humor can no more find the solution to race problems than it can cure cancer. True, but Gregory's edgy brand of comedy made a lot of people, white and black, at least do some hard thinking about those problems. Dick Gregory was a trailblazer, one of the first black comedians to bring racially charged comedy to white audiences in the early 1960s. I hate to see any baseball player having troubles, but that's a great sport for my people. That is the only sport in the world where a Negro can shake a stick at a white man and won't start no ride. His first big break was an appearance on The Tonight Show in 1962. Gregory had only agreed to go on the show if he could sit down with host Jack Parr after his routine. Before then, African Americans appearing on the show would have to leave the set after performing. When they say this show features living color, you better believe it. One of the first black comedians with crossover appeal to white audiences, Gregory would become an outspoken activist for civil rights. You can always laugh at problems that's right Everyone in the whole world knows this is a wrong. So then you can make humor out of it and matter like you enlightening people. He marched in Selma, Alabama in 1965, protested the Vietnam War, often staging hunger strikes. Later in his career, he went on to perform in TV specials, never losing his hallmark edge. I came back in from Europe last month, CNN. Uh, Mr. Gregory, you think uh, we'll ever catch Ben Loudon? I say, we? I'm still trying to find out who my daddy is. This morning, reaction to Gregory's death. Whoopi Goldberg calling him a fall-on-your-face laughing comedian. And singer John Legend, who produced a play about him, sang Dick Gregory lived an amazing, revolutionary life. And a few years ago, Dick Gregory was asked how he wanted to be remembered. He said, quote, I am the turtle hard on the outside, soft on the inside, and willing to stick your neck out. He was 84 years of age and certainly willing to stick his neck out. It's an important time to be having this conversation in America. Absolutely. And and very, very funny comic. Uh, Absolutely. One, one of the uh, uh, jokes that I read in the newspaper was he said that he spent nine months uh, at a sit-in at a lunch counter, and when it was finally integrated, they didn't have anything he wanted to eat. Hi, everyone. George Stephanopoulos here. Thanks for checking out the ABC News YouTube channel. Let's see what else we can get about Dick Gregory. Um
very influential, influential guy. Gregory, <clears throat> dead at 84. Look him up on uh, on uh, YouTube and see some of his routines. I can remember uh, very early in my own awareness, around 1960-61, seeing Dick Gregory on TV, and uh, was at Christmas time, and Dick Gregory said, "My little son came up to me and said." Daddy, don't try to sell me with all that Santa Claus stuff. I know that's not true. And Dick says to his son, well, oh, what do you mean it's not true? He said, well, you know no white man's going to come down here in the middle of the night and get on the boat. Talking about Chicago. introduce you to somebody, <coughs> Mr. Block. Mr. Block was <coughs> Mr. Block was a product of the pen of uh, Ernst Reedy. And um, it, it was in the new, a comic strip in the IWW papers and just recently Nick Thorkelson well known labor, labor and political cartoonist graphic artist took it up we'll see some more these are the ones drawn by Thorkelson I object to anarchism in this boxcar. Mr. Block, Ernest Reby, the problem of slaves who think in terms of their masters. And you know who they are. Slaves who think in terms of their masters. Mr. Block was a cartoon character who appeared regularly in a series of IWW periodicals. IWW wasn't so galdarn radical. Perhaps I would join as soon as I got down below. He's being kicked down the stairs. I'm the subject of a satirical song by Joe Hill based on the comic. Money kings in Cuba blew up the gunboat Maine, but Block got awful angry and blamed it all on Spain. Mr. Block comic was created by a German immigrant, Ernest Reba. We don't know what he looked like, but since cartoons often pass their characters on as themselves, he might have looked a lot like Mr. Block. And you can find Mr. Block at the, look at nickthorkelson.com or if you Google Mr. Block. Somewhere along the line, Reba was bit by the revolutionary bug. All these gadflies are coming at Mr. Black. Exploiters have no religion. Use sabotage. Don't submit. 
make a noise and immediately had a problem how to open the eyes of his conservative, timid, and opportune fellow slaves. One of them saying, I will invest this and make a fortune. If I show up, if I show the boss I am loyal, I'll get a nice present. We will have to join a respectable church. Don't listen to agitators. Everybody can be successful if he only makes up of his mind. Starting in November 1912, Mr. Block did the job by acting out every illusion, alibi, and panacea available to the non-revolutionary worker and consequently getting his butt, butt kicked. So we'll read some more Mr. Block next week. This is the B, and I'm reminding you that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu, and never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor, and when I say labor, I mean you. Of course, they don't want you to unionize. Your work makes them rich. Have a good week and good work. Talk to you next Saturday. Stay tuned now for Flat Black Plastic with Scott Walker.
was going to be this bad. Most of us probably figured it would just be four more years of the same old. He was a 70-year-old babbling Nimrod. How bad could it really be? Treason is the last of his felonious activities. The Trump brand has hijacked our government and sold Lady Liberty to the mob. We are a leaderless and without the most basic healthcare systems and community services. COVID-19 is a pandemic, but the Trump brand is the virus. Welcome to the antivirus. Go to antitrump.com and spread the word. Individual politics aren't important. What is important is that we stand together as a unified voice and say enough is enough. That's antitrump.com. Welcome to Strictly Bad Vibes, your personal complaint department. people and their stupid complaints that we requested they send us. Why did we do this? Why, why are we <laughs> None of which matters in this equation because it is his choice to carry such horse shit on the fucking train. And he was yelling. He was like, move it, bitch, move it, bitch. And, uh, and uh, I wasn't, I wasn't. I'm just not. I'm not moving it, you know. I've arrived. Why should I move? I don't like what work has been giving us at our free lunches. 115-340-1976, and it does not spell anything. 115-340-1976. Go for it. Call in, guys.
everybody. Listen to the weekly review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the weekly review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here. I'm giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of <laughs> YouTube uh, with Michael Spiegelman. Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L W A F L M O Y T. We watch a full-length movie on YouTube. 
with you and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah. L W A F L M O Y T. Yeah, L W F L M O Y T. L W A F L M O Y T. That's every Sunday, two p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, five percent, five percent. Right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show. Five p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh, let's watch full length. Let's do a full minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See you next month. What's up, Oakland? Have you been missing out on live music and comedy? Remember Killer Dinners? Don't worry about a thing, because Soul Sausage Presents Pandementia has brought you the hottest, freshest, sexiest new beast in the Bay Area. The Oakland Unicorn Speakeasy Comedy and Dinner Club in Koreatown, Northgate, featuring comedians from NBC, MTV, Comedy Central, Soul Sausage TV, and YouTube. Tickets and packages, showtimes, and information are all at oaklandunicorn.com. Followed by Soul Sausage. Thank you. Healing Collective. Grand opening weekend, August 6th through 9th, featuring Kabir Singh and Xander Beltran. Tickets on sale now at oaklandunicorn.com. That's oaklandunicorn.com. Hey, take a break from the social isolation and come out to All Jokes, the daytime outdoor comedy show at All Good Pizza in Bayview on Saturday, August 22nd at 3 p.m., where Drea Myers hosts a super funny lineup of comedians. Grab some 